right, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, thank you for, for being here today. Uh, before we jump in, uh, we are going to pray, and uh, we are going to deal with, first of all, we want to go through some reasons why we spend so much time on an issue that's not of primary importance to the Christian life, like we've been doing about details concerning Christ's return. Why would we spend, uh, why would we want to spend so much time thinking about something like that? And then we want to deal also uh, with objections to uh, the view that we've been presenting. So, uh, let's uh, pray together. Papa Fred, would you pray for our time, and then we will we'll jump in. Thank you, Mark. Lord, Lord Christ, uh, we are um, uh, dealing with and confronting and, and talking about and some of the um, most profound text in all of scripture that have been debated for 2,000 years, probably longer than that, but certainly since Christ's advent, first advent. And um, uh, Mark, uh, in one of his texts, uh, uh, talked about being a piece of a puzzle. And, and I think that's, that's a good uh, illustration because like a puzzle, there, there are pieces. There are pieces scattered throughout prophecy, both Old Testament and New Testament. And when you, when you examine each of these pieces individually, they, uh, it's amazing how they fit. And it's amazing the story they tell. And they all uh, um, come together in the glorious appearing uh, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for his church and for his saints uh, at the last trumpet. And that's what we're trying to um, examine and exposit and teach and explore today. So, Holy Spirit, be with us and guide us every uh, step of the way in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, I Just for my own self here, I need to go ahead and give uh, proper credit with over the last few weeks, a lot of people I personally have been sort of relying on. One is there's a book called The Rapture, uh, Pre-Tribulation, Pre-Wrath, or Post. Uh, tribulation. And the author, Doug Moo, who I think is one of the finest New Testament commentators alive today, uh, he gave the position that we've been sort of arguing for. So, I've borrowed a lot of argument myself from his position. Also, Sam Storms, uh, I've, I've, I've borrowed material from him and from Piper and from others, but I wanted to give due credit to them uh, where it is due. Um, I, I want to begin with six points, and these kind of go quickly, and they kind of come in pairs. So, one and two go together, three and four go together, five and six go together, but why would we spend so much time uh, thinking about less essential doctrines and even doctrines that are more disputed amongst genuine Christians, genuine believers? N number one, I don't know if you, you even have time to jot down some of this, but you can, you can maybe try if you wanted to, but number one, it motivates us to read passages of the Bible that we are tempted to ignore. Have you found this to be true just in any, any study of a topic that you're not used to studying? It, it pushes us to go into parts of the Bible that are less familiar. I, I tell you, I, I love the more familiar parts of the Bible. I love the, the, the Gospels and, and Romans and these kinds of things that we spend. We just want to live our life in these books. But I don't want to neglect parts of the Bible and, and go years without really studying these things deeply. So when you think about it, you think of Daniel, which we plan to cover next semester, is not a book we spend a lot of time in, especially the second half of Daniel. Ezekiel, Isaiah, Zechariah. Jesus' Olivet Discourse that we've talked about a lot, you know, it's the longest section of teaching from Jesus in all of Mark's gospel is the Olivet Discourse. And yet, we, oftentimes, we can skim through it and not really stop to think about what's being said. Of Paul's letters, and we love the, the letters of Paul, 
I would say, other than maybe Philemon, the, letter that gets, the letters that get most neglected are the Thessalonian letters, and the Thessalonian letters are the ones we've talked about a lot recently because they focus on end times issues surrounding the return of Christ. And finally, the book of Revelation itself. Uh, oftentimes, it feels very mysterious to us. We feel very uncertain about certain aspects about what's going on in that book, but the book of Revelation clearly is dealing with, with uh, issues between uh, Christ's first coming and, and ultimately leading up to His, his return. Number two, this goes with that. So, number one, we read passages we often ignore. Number two, it motivates us to read the text of Scripture more carefully than we have before. And I think this is important. How many of you in Bible reading, you read through a chapter of the Bible, and you kind of feel like you get the gist of what's going on, and you move on, and you know, it might be another six months before you see that passage again. It might be another year or so before you see it again. But how often do we slow down and really figure out what does each phrase mean, how does it compare to other texts, et cetera, et cetera? It makes us, I think, more careful uh, Bible students. Number three, uh, it, it increases our awareness of how much we need God's help as we study His Word and try to put all the puzzle pieces together. It shows us how much we need God's help. I think of 2 Timothy chapter 2, I think it's verse 7, I've got it here. Uh, Paul says to Timothy, think over what I say. Why? For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So we are forced to think carefully over Scripture, and we're asking God for help that we might be able to better understand uh, what is before us. I want you guys to, <laughs> I want to bring you guys in here. For no, number four, it humbles us and shows how small our knowledge really is. Thoughts on, on how the humbling effect of studying some of these issues? Yes. Uh, they're, they're not black and white answers. I mean, there's, there's many shades of gray. That's no, that doesn't mean it's, they're obscure, but it takes that uh, number three point, number three, awareness of our need for help. Mm -hmm. Because just because we read a passage and we say, ah, oh, that sort of sounds like Zechariah or, or, or Luke or something. No, uh, look at these passages. That's, I'll, I'll make a little plug a little quickly for Grudem. You know, Grudem has a lot of Scripture. In fact, the whole thing is full of Scripture. And if you read Grudem without reading the Scripture uh, references, then, then you're really missing mm -hmm. out what, what Grudem's trying to say because he's trying to tell a, a picture. So I'm humble when I read this because I thought 20, 30 years ago <laughs> with the Left Behind series had it all figured out. And I just kind of par parked that and, and moved on. And, and even even... This has uh, this discussion here has just reinvigorated my, whetted my appetite for more. So, I want to mention something on number two that yeah. you mentioned. You said it motivates us to read the text more carefully than before. Um, studying through issues like what we've been doing, um, above all else, it should push us to get in the text of Scripture and really wrestle with what Scripture's saying. Um, when I, as I have like wrestled through, and I, when I say wrestled, like it's been agonizing at times as I have worked through this over the years, um, you know, just the issues we're talking about, not to say other issues as well. Um, what it constantly makes me do is go back to the text of scripture and ask the question, what is scripture actually saying? Um, and so I like, and this is just something for me personally, I am not going to talk on an issue until I can see it in Scripture, understand it from Scripture, and then open up the Scripture and explain it clearly from the text. Um, and th on these issues especially, 
Like it has forced me to get into the text like nothing else has. Um, because you get into the text and then you really have to evaluate your conclusions in light of what's there. And, you, and if we're going to be honest, sometimes that's hard to do. Um, but other times it's like, what are we truly submitting to what the text actually says or what we want it to say? Um, and so getting into the text and letting the text evaluate us and, and in a sense, letting the text interpret us instead of us just interpreting the text, um, issues like this, it will expose idols in our hearts, things we don't want to let go of, um, whatever they may be, um, and will show us, you know, again, you talk about being humbled, we realize so often what we believe and what we preach might not be as textually based as we thought it was. Um, but getting into the text repeatedly just confronts us re repeatedly with God's truth in light of what we believe and the necessity of adjusting what we believe in light of what God says. I, I completely agree. And I, I bet most all of us in this room have had the experience of this happening. Maybe some of us, it was a more central doctrine. Maybe it was more secondary. But haven't we all had an experience, or most of us, since we became Christians, of, of uh, being challenged in something we grew up believing the Bible said? Right? We thought something since we grew up. The Bible says this. We always believed it. And then suddenly someone presents us with something in the Bible that at first almost maybe makes us a little angry deep down. We're like, that's not right. And I don't think that. And then they start showing texts of Scripture. And you start going, well, I don't think it's right. And then time goes by and you start looking into the text yourself. Suddenly you're reading through entire books of the Bible looking at this topic. Like, like It might be whatever it could be. I, you could pick anything. But you, suddenly you're reading through Colossians and Philippians saying, is it there? First Corinthians, is it there? You look through a gospel, is it there? What about over here? Is it there? And you read and you read. And over time, what happens? Suddenly, maybe even through tears, a view you held deeply at one point in your life, you begin to loosen your grip and you realize, oh, the Bible is actually teaching something different than what I grew up thinking, what I actually thought here, what was actually true. And I mean, I, could, I won't go through those, but I've had numerous of those in my life where something fundamental starts changing, not about the gospel exactly, but something important to the Christian life. And I, I start realizing I was wrong about something. And I think it is a, it's a wonderfully humbling experience to go through that because I think we've all on this panel been through that numerous yes. times. And it's a great gift from God to have that happen to us. Because I think, I think we all open the Bible sometimes with presuppositions. Oh, this is mm -hmm. Timothy. This is, you know, this is Paul's letter to, to Timothy. And, and, and so we kind of know the, the context somewhat, we think. And then we get to a passage, and I was just thinking about 2 Timothy. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And, and, and that's the foundation for what we're doing. That's exactly right. And number five here for, for why we study these kinds of things. Think about this. I think it gives us, this may sound strange, I think it gives us greater assurance about the central doctrines of Christianity when we return from some of the more peripheral and obscure issues. So, you know, you're out here working through eschatology and you realize how difficult it is to build your eschatology and to understand what the Bible says. And you work through things for perhaps hours, days, weeks, and you, you settle on some things. And then you come back to central doctrines, like the divinity and humanity of Christ. And you see how incredibly clear the text is on that. Or you, you come back to the doctrine of justification by faith, not by works. You realize how unbelievably clear the Bible is on that. So I, I think there's something healthy to go out to the edge of what we're even able to understand biblically and try to do our best there. But when we return from the edge and we get back to the center, I think we have greater certainty over the central arguments because they are so abundantly clear. Um, the Westminster Confession of Faith from, what, the 16-somethings, 17th century, the Westminster Confession says this, all things in Scripture are not alike plain or clear, 
in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that uh, not only the learned, but the unlearned in a, in a due sense of the due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. That's a fancy way of saying that not everything is equally clear in the Bible, but the central things are abundantly clear in God's Word. That's the doctrine of God's, the clarity of God's Word. And the last point here, uh, number six, would be it also at the same time makes us less susceptible to error. Uh, It makes us less susceptible to error, especially on those primary doctrines. So thoughts about how it strengthens up our, our fundamental doctrines? Well, it goes back to the fact that we, when we study these, again, secondary issues, we, we're wrestling with the text. We're wrestling with, you know, how the Bible fits together. We're wrestling with, as Fred, you know, when he prayed, we're, we're piecing the puzzle together. And the more we're, we're not just dealing with the core doctrines, but with these secondary doctrines, if you want to put it that way, we're, we're seeing how it all fits. We're seeing the connections. We're seeing the big picture, if you will, so that, you know, whether, you know, just say on the issues we're talking about, whether you're a dispensationalist or, or you know, more covenantal post-trib folks like we would be, like you, you're still seeing the, the centrality of the gospel working its way out in specific ways so that when false teaching comes in, whether you're, whatever perspective you're of on that, you start to see, wait a minute, this can't fit. Mm-hmm. Um, because you've spent time, not just in the heart of it, but how that works out in so many different ways. And when you've worked out the whole of Scripture, you've got, you've got a, a, a strength, an inner strength, an inner rigidity, like a, uh, instead of wood, you've got a steel-framed building now um, that isn't easily broken into, um, and, and you have a resistance against stuff that's false. Yes, it, just to take another example, people who've wrestled through the doctrines of, say, biblical gender roles or the doctrine of election, just to take two hot-button issues, it, people who've wrestled through those and come to clear biblical convictions, those people are not going to be the people I suspect will fall to the sexual revolution. You understand what I mean? So, in other words, if, you, if you've gone into these issues and you've seen what Scripture says, usually people who hold to the doctrines of, of election and the doctrine you know, of biblical gender roles being good and glorious for men and women, people who are solid on those tend to not be the ones who are going to fall prey to other issues out here. And so, there, there's a way in which these doctrines mutually strengthen one another, and, and that's one of the reasons why uh, it's worth uh, studying even secondary issues like this. Anything else before we jump into the objections? Just one, just one thing back to the sus- less susceptible uh, to, um, to error. Um, you know, we're talking about, you know, false teaching, false Christ, that type thing. They had this in the first century. So this has been going on for, for 2,000 years. Uh, this is not something new in the church. In fact, most of the heresies raised their ugly heads within the first two or 300 years after Christ. And we're still, some of those same heresies are still around today, and we're still confronting them. But we've been told and been warned that many Christs will come, many false prophets will come in the, in the latter days, and it's simply going to get worse. So less susceptible to error is very, very important. Yes. Can I make one more quick yeah. comment on this in light of what he was saying? I think what roots all of this, why... Um, like, you know, we'll have our disagreements on this issue, like with, with John MacArthur and folks like that. But at the same time, um, I think there's a, a shared allegiance to the sufficiency of Scripture, like truly upholding the sufficiency of Scripture as our final authority, as the last word, the final word, the ultimate word um, on any matters of doctrine or life or practice. 
um, you know, the, again, you know, we talked about it, it kind of it gives you a, a stronger building and more rigid framework. Um, when you truly embrace the sufficiency of Scripture, um, you're not leaving the door open for the world to come in and affect how you think. I mean, we all have to be careful, but you have closed certain doors and you've said there are certain things that we are just not going to consider. Worldly philosophies, worldly ideologies, we're not going to give them the same weight as Scripture. Everything's going to be judged by what's here. And so that's why on one hand, I will, I will have a, a robust disagreement with MacArthur like on the end times, but at the same time, I... I I, I am beyond thankful um, and, and eager to hear what he has to say. Why? Because he's not going to question that this is the final authority. I can have a debate with him. I can have a disagreement with him because there's no question on this. Like we, we, we both come to this. This solves it and nothing else. And that's what I think it, it also needs to help us keep it in the bigger perspective. Um, you know, even where there might be disagreement on some of these things, the disagreement is biblically based. It's not because, well, we need to get another lens on how we need to read the text and, you know, this outside lens to help us see things that aren't really there. No, scripture's the deciding factor. And that's why we, that's why we can disagree and yet still have great unity. Oh, that's well said. Okay. Turn to Revelation chapter three in your Bible. Revelation chapter three. In, in my, uh, you know, in my, in my opinion, I think this is the strongest uh, verse for the other side on this issue that, that there is. If, if I was of the other persuasion, if I was pre-trib, this would be my go-to verse to try to argue that point. Revelation 3.10, uh, it's written to the church in Philadelphia. We won't read the whole context here, but just start at verse 9. This is Revelation 3. Jesus is speaking to the church in Philadelphia. Revelation 3.9 Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, here it is. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make, a, make him a pillar in the temple of God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own uh, new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." So verse 10, I think, is, I think it's the strongest pre-trib verse, so-called, uh, in the Bible that I know of. Uh, let me read it one more time. Verse 10, because you have kept my word, he's talking to a church, about the patient endurance, I will keep you from, that's critical to understand, keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So we're talking about some kind of hour of trial that's going to be worldwide. Sounds like the great tribulation. Uh, in fact, I incline toward it probably being the great tribulation. There's debate about that, but I, I think it probably is the great tribulation. And here it says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is to come upon the earth. You can see how this sounds like a pre-tribulation verse, at least upon a sur surface reading of it. Sounds like God's going to get the churches out of the world. He's going to keep you from this worldwide hour of trial that's coming on the world. So I think it's the strongest pre-trib verse in the Bible. Would someone like to start this off, Greg or Fred? Well, I, I, um, I too heard this back, oh, yeah. in, back in my pre-trib days, but I couldn't figure out in my... I guess my own limitations. 
I couldn't figure out how this would apply to all churches. I mean, this is to one church. Now, I know that this doesn't, uh, there's seven churches, and, and this is, could apply to the universal church or to this church in Philadelphia. This is the one church that they did commend, okay, uh, of, of the, there two of them they commended, but, or Jesus commended, but this was one of them. So he's going he's gonna to protect them. But uh, as we've already discussed, I, I couldn't figure out how this would fit, how it would, how it would apply to the, the church in general. So to precipitate a rapture, to take everybody out before it got bad. Um, we've talked about this, but God, if God wanted to protect uh, the church, uh, he doesn't need to take them out to protect them. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that we're going to skate out of the tribulation, that we're going to avoid uh, the end times. And, and, and Jesus, even in his, all the Olivet Discourses from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he doesn't say you're going to avoid the tribulation. He's going to go through the tribulation, and then I'm going to come. Yeah. So he pretty much sets that. So and the, and the example I think we've even talked about this is that think about the Exodus Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that's a good example. I mean, God, um, I, I did a little, little preview this morning and, you know, the, no Israel, no Hebrew died when, when the, with the 10th plague. There was not hail on the Hebrews. There was not darkness when, I mean, this is, in Goshen, it was light mm -hmm. when it was dark everywhere else. Amazing. Uh, no cattle of the um, Hebrews died. So, so God can protect his people, and, and the Hebrews were a precursor to the church. He can protect them without removing them from the situation at the time that it's happening. That, and, and Exodus is a good example of that. And the, the, okay, and I think Greg's about to go here too. The, there's, a, there's a Greek phrase that's important here, okay? Kept from. I will keep you from the hour of trial. The Greek phrase, I think it's pronounced tereo ek. Okay, ek means out of or from. Tereo ek means kept from. That, this is important. That phrase, tereo ek, kept from, is only used one other time in the entire Greek Bible. Okay, it's only one other time in the entire New Testament. Turn with me to John 17, because this is the only other use of this phrase anywhere in the Bible. So it would be worth our attention to see what it does say. You want me to read it? You want to pick it up? Yeah. yeah Why man, don't you read? Can you read 11 through 15? Yeah, I'll be John happy to. John 17, 11 through 15. Yeah, I'll be happy to. He says, this is Jesus and his high priestly prayer. It says, and I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. In verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Okay, verse 15 is where this phrase appears. Do you see it there? Look at verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Now, I think this is an illuminating parallel passage. Think about it. God, the only other time God has said, or anyone has said, to keep you from, it explicitly says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. 
but that you keep them from, the evil one. Do you see? So there's no rapture in this text. I I'm asking you not to take them out of the world during the time of temptation and trial, the time of Satan. I'm, not, I'm, I'm asking you to actually keep them in the world, but terawak, keep them from the evil one in the midst of their time in the world. Be in the world, but not of the world. And so th to me, this parallel is very interesting if you put it next to Revelation 3.10. The, the hour of trial coming upon the world, I'm gonna keep them from. In other words, I am gonna preserve their faith in the midst of the trial coming upon the world, just as he's gonna keep us from the temptations of the devil while not taking us from the world. I think there's an interesting parallel between the two. Greg, on that? Well, and the word also carries the connotation of guarding, yes. like protecting in a sense. Um, and again, in light of John 17, he's not totally removing Satan from the picture. He's just saying, yes, Satan's going to be at work, but I'm praying that they would be guarded, protected from yes, that so that they right. don't lose faith. So that whatever Satan does, it doesn't pull them ultimately away from me. Like that, I think it's perseverance uh, that he's talking about here uh, so that their faith endures and perseveres through whatever Satan brings. And so the guarding from isn't a removal. It's more a protection in the midst of uh, so that faith continues and faith perseveres to the end. And that, that's that word kept is what it's often yep. referring to in, in verse 11. And I think it's in verse 12 and 15. God is keeping us. Christ is keeping us in the midst of something. Turn back to Revelation 2 now. I'm going to go to chapter 2. And just listen again how the, the theme of Revelation as you read it is not God taking you out of tribulation, but him helping you, like you said, persevere through tribulation. Look at a letter to another church. We'll start with Smyrna here. Look at 2 uh, verse 9. See if it sounds like they're being removed from tribulation. It sounds like, rather, God's keeping them in it. 2.9, to the church of Smyrna, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews but are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Why should we not fear it? Because we're about to be taken out of the world? No. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation." Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Do you see here? It's about God preserving you and you being preserved through these days of trial and tribulation and coming out victorious on the end of that and being rewarded for faithfulness. That's why throughout the book of Revelation, it keeps saying, this is a call for the endurance of the saints. We get the phrase perseverance of the saints, perhaps even from verses like that. This is a call for the perseverance, the endurance of the saints, that we would last, that we would hold true to Christ no matter what comes our way, no matter how difficult or challenging it is. We cling to Christ. He clings to us, and He gets us through. He delivers us through these things, and we come out victorious the other side, and we, are, we receive the, the crown of life. Let's move to objection number two. Uh, one person, Richard Mayhew, who I quoted last week, says, quote, the church is not mentioned uh, in Revelation 6 to 18 as being on earth. Now, if that doesn't mean anything to you, let me, let me try to explain this. The word church is used repeatedly in Revelation 1 through 3. It's used over and over and over again. This is what the Spirit says to the churches, the word ecclesia, churches. Then in chapter 4, the word ecclesia, the word church, disappears from Revelation it's not in chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. It's not, it doesn't reappear until chapter 22, the last chapter of Revelation when there's a new creation. So why is it that the church, the church seems to be missing from the world? After you deal with the early part of Revelation with the churches, the word church is gone during the, the, the so-called seal, you know, seals, trumpets, and bowls, the time of, of judgment. There's no mention of the church on earth. And then the church reappears in the new creation. The question is, what, what, do we, what do we do with that? What's that supposed to mean? And I think the answer is, well, 
Interesting. If we're dealing with how many times the word church appears, Greg, you were talking about this. What's the problem with that view? Because you said the church also doesn't appear anywhere in the mid- middle of Revelation, whether yeah. on earth or in heaven. And so the reason why I think that is significant is, yeah, you don't see the church mentioned anywhere on earth um, during the main you know, visionary part of the book, but you don't see it mentioned in heaven either. And that's where the church is supposed to be. Right. Uh, so whereas the church doesn't just disappear, uh, I think what we have to understand is that chapters 4 all the way up through chapter 21 or through uh, yeah, chapter 21, 21. Uh, first part of chapter 22 is the main part of, of an apocalyptic visionary letter. Like it's not going to be discussing reality and terminology and, and language that we're familiar with. It's going to be doing it in a way that is different than we're used to in the normal use of language. And so the church can be absolutely present throughout that part of Revelation if you understand it's not going to be talked about using the normal language. I mean, that, that just seems to make sense. Apocalyptic literature is very symbolic. It's very graphic. Um, and it's going to look at things um, and use metaphors and different things that might, you might not normally use when you refer to certain people in events. Um, and so if, if you understand that it's going to talk about the people of God, it's going to talk about the saints, it's going to talk about this, that, and the other, um, you see the church everywhere in Revelation if you allow Revelation to show it to you. If you decide beforehand that it can't, then you're going to have a hard time with this. But if you say, all right, let me just take a step back and let me say, okay, how, do we, how should we understand the church? What is the church? It's what? The people who believe in Jesus, the people who trust in his blood for salvation, the people who you know, resist the devil, who, and those kinds of things. If you start to think, and the people called the saints, the saints New Testament, um, saints yep. in Revelation, if you start to see those points of connection, then all of a sudden you start to see the church everywhere. Yeah, in the middle of Revelation, just to give you an example here, saints, right? Saints would be the church, right? So on earth, you have the saints mentioned in Revelation 13, 7, 13, 10, 17, 6, 18, 24. Saints on earth. Who is that? That's the church. That's Christians. That's believers. The saints are also in heaven in Revelation in 8, 3 and 18, 20 and on and on. You have saints in heaven, saints on earth. The saints in heaven are the martyred saints or the saints who have died and have gone to heaven. The saints on earth are the church who's still alive during times of difficulty on earth. Well, why would you call uh, the church in heaven saints, but then not the church on earth, maybe the Jewish Christians on earth saints? It's confusing. You're, you're calling the both sides, the, both groups, the same name, saints. I think the most natural reading is it's believers. It's, genu- it's Christians. And you could do that with, I think, several different arguments. I, I don't think that, that argument does a lot because, again, the word church is not used on earth. It's also not used in heaven in those chapters. Does the church just disappear? The church just get raptured out of existence? Like, where's the church? Well, clearly the word is not being used, church. But yeah. uh, by the way, in Revelation, this is tricky. The word churches, I think every time it's used, it's referring to local churches like the seven churches in Asia Minor. It never once do I know of in Revelation, does it use the word church singular to describe the universal church? So to me, this argument breaks down in all kinds of different ways. I just don't think it, it, it says a lot at the end of the day. Let me move to the next uh, issue here, number three. Just, just one thing. Oh, yeah, go ahead, Paul. Just one thing on saints. Um, you know, Paul, I, of course, he almost every epistle, uh, he addresses the believers as saints. He doesn't always do that, though. Just so, but right. generally he does. So uh, that would be an indication. And, and when he does, that's an inclusion is, is the body of Christ, the ecclesia. He, he doesn't say ecclesia, but he calls them saints. So, right. and, and Revelation does the same. No, I, I completely agree. Number three, see if this objection makes sense here. All agree uh, Christians will never experience God's wrath. 
Right. We all agree. Christians will never experience God's wrath. However, doesn't God pour out His wrath on the earth during the tribulation? Think of the bowls of wrath in Revelation being poured out on the earth in chapters, I think, 15 and 16. If so, wouldn't this mean the church would need to be raptured beforehand? You get that? We're not going to experience God's wrath. Don't we need to be out of here before God's wrath is poured out on the earth? And I think there's, there's probably three major ways to respond to this, and I'll mention all three of them. Number one, this is important. I think this one is very important. Both views, the pre-trib rapture and the post-trib rapture, both views teach that believers or saints will be on earth during the tribulation and many will be martyred. Both views believe that. So why would the church be exempted from what other Christians will endure during the seven years of tribulation? Do you see what I'm saying here? Um, so let's, let's say the pre-trib view, okay? Remember the table is the seven years of tribulation? So rapture happens here. The church is gone. According to that view, during these seven years, 144,000 Jews, which is, it's, this is in Revelation, we can explain later what I think this means. They think 144,000 Jews are converted during the seven years. God protects them, but then many thousands of non-Jews are converted during these seven years, okay? And they are converted, and many of them are brutally martyred and are killed horrifically and, and, and are taken to heaven during those seven years. Then Jesus comes back at the end to bring judgment. Okay, do you see how both sides have the same so-called problem? In both situations, you have people on earth when the bowls are being poured out. So some way or another, God has to protect his people on earth, no matter which view you take. So actually, I think that, you know, if, if I have this problem, then both sides have this problem, okay? That, that's the first thing I would say. Uh, number two, Fred just mentioned this. Is it possible for God's people to be in a place like Egypt and God to pour out his judgments and his people to be spared while everyone around them experiences the judgments? Yeah, when the death angel came, no one in Israel died. They were in the same land. They're in North Egypt, which is Goshen. That's in Egypt. They're not out of Egypt. They haven't been taken out yet. They are in the land for all 10 plagues of God's wrath, his judgment on the Egyptians. But the judgment hits the Egyptians and their unbelief. The people of Israel are preserved time and time again. So it is actually possible for God's pe people to be physically present when God brings judgment and them not to experience God's wrath. Did Noah live on the earth during the time of God's wrath? And did he, was he preserved from God's wrath? Yes, uh, Jeremiah was in the city of Israel, when it, uh, Jerusalem, when it was being taken by the Babylonians and destroyed. God still in some, Jeremiah never experienced God's punishing wrath as a believer, although God did pour out his wrath on the city at that time. This is a common theme in the Bible that God can preserve his people even when his wrath is being poured out. And I want to hear from y'all in just a second. Papa, what you got? Well, Jeremiah didn't have a cakewalk though, even though no. he, didn't, he didn't experience the wrath. He personally was persecuted. Yes, for his faith and for his allegiance to the, his, Yahweh. That's a great point, Fred. So yeah, we, we will experience, I think, increasing persecution during these coming years, but I do not think we will experience God's wrath. That's very right. important. We can experience intense persecution without experiencing God's wrath. And if, number three here, I'm actually not convinced the Bible does teach that God's wrath will be poured out on the world before Jesus comes back. Okay, so uh, in Revelation, okay, this, this, is, this is for a later day, um, and I would love to go through Revelation one day in the future, but, but for right now, we can't do that. But let, let me just say this, um, I am strongly persuaded, and I don't have time to walk through this, but I would love to take a day to argue for this. I do not think Revelation is written in chronological order. I think the evidence is extremely strong. I mean, it's hard for me to state this. I am thoroughly persuaded that Revelation uh, is not in chronological, sequential order, like, you know, day after day, moving, in, moving forward. I think it is recapitulatory. 
So that I think chapter 6 of Revelation covers it, all of history between Christ's first and second coming. And if you, at the end of chapter 6, what happens? The wrath of the Lamb comes. The, the, the sky is fleeing away. People are calling for rocks to crush them lest they face the wrath of the Lamb. That's the, that's the end of the world. It's the end of chapter 6. And then chapter 7, we go back and we start over again. And then the world ends again in what? Chapter 11. The world ends again in chapter 16. The world gets, ends again in chapter 19. And some say it ends again in chapter 20. My point is, once you understand that Revelation is not in straight chronological order, but that the earth and sky flee away, how many times can the earth and sky flee away. I'm thinking that's once. Well, how can it happen several times in Revelation? Because we're back again to the same moment. We're coming back. And once you see Revelation is largely recapitulatory, you go through all of history, you come back to the part uh, uh, early in church history. You go all the way to the end, you come all the way back. When you realize that the earth ends in multiple chapters in Revelation, you realize you're dealing with coming back, coming back, coming back. And, and what that does is it changes how you read Revelation. So most people will think each of those times the sky flees away, it's God pouring out his wrath during the seven years. I'm convinced they're all talking about the final return of Christ, which is a single event that happens at the very end of all of this. So I don't have time to really make this point, but I am strongly persuaded. I mean, I am strongly persuaded. Revelation is not in chronological order, but that the earth ends over and over again, which is a sign that you have recapitulation. But that's true of all of prophecy, though. You yeah. think about Zechariah. Read through Zechariah, which is, there's more quotes. There's 71 quotes from Zechariah uh, in the New Testament and 31 in Revelation itself. So next to Ezekiel, yeah. it's got the most quotes. And yet you read through Zechariah and it's, again, it's, it's not in chronological order. It's this right. typology of things to come. So it, it, Just take the seals trumpets and bowls. You've probably heard of those. You, 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 those are times when disaster is coming down in Revelation 6 to 16 are the chapters. When you, the seals are opened, the lamb opens it. Remember who is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, the seven seals? Well, Jesus opens the, well, the, the first six seals are open and it's, I think it takes you all the way to the end of the world. And then we start back over with the seven trumpets and we do the same thing all over again. And the seven trumpets are parallel with the seven seals. And you go through the seven trumpets, you go all the way up to the sixth trumpet, you get right to the end and it stops. And now it goes back to what? The seven bowls. And I think, I think you're getting closer and closer to the end, but you're also going back and cycling through these things over and over. And each of those seven gets you to the end of the world and then it takes you back again and you walk back through the seven, the seven, the seven. So I, I think that that is a, a, a very consistent way actually to read the book as a whole. Right, I, wanna, I wanna make this really quick because yeah. I know we still got a few point, uh, one or two points to do. Um, thinking of not reading Revelation chronologically, especially as it applies to God's people um, and being, you know, afflicted and undergoing wrath and stuff like that. This is something as I was looking over this, it just, it kind of struck me. In Revelation 7, you've got the 144,000 from all the different tribes that are mentioned. And it says they were uh, sealed and it, you know, God says, don't harm the earth or the sea until we've sealed the servants of our God. So 144,000, I think representative of the entire people of God. You read it um, all the way um, up into the rest of chapter seven. There's, I'm not gonna go there now. Now you get to um, chapter nine and it talks about um, the, the, let's see, the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit, it's opened um, and these, these locusts come out and it says they're told not to harm what? The grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal mm -hmm. of God on their foreheads. At this point, the only people seal, if this is chronological, the only people who have the seal are the 144,000 Jews. 
That means there's a lot of Gentile believers in the world that don't have the seal who are going to be tormented. If you don't have the seal, you receive the torment and the penalty from whatever these creatures are. And again, I don't, that's why I say I don't know if chronological is the exact way to look at it, but also in terms of how it describes the people of God. Um, because if that's the case, then you've got people who are believing in Jesus who are being afflicted by these creatures just because they didn't have this seal and that's why I think you have to be careful how you read it. I completely, completely agree with that. We must keep moving. Yes. Number four objection is this. Now, follow this. This is a different kind of objection. It's called the imminence objection. Is the return of Christ imminent? And usually it just depends on what you mean by the word imminent. So I do believe in the imminent return of Christ, but I might not define it the way some people do. Okay, so if by imminent we mean in any second return, now, I should always footnote before I say something like this. I am more than happy if Jesus comes back in 30 seconds. I will apologize to all of you on our way to meet Jesus, and I will be, it'll be fine. It'll be all right. He'll forgive me for that, and it'll be, it will keep moving. I'll be happy to repent in the sky if I'm saying this incorrectly. But my understanding of the return of Christ, which, of course, it could be wrong, test it with Scripture. My understanding is Christ's return is imminent in the sense that the events that would transpire before his return could start taking place at any second, and within a very short period of months or years, Christ could return. But I don't think Christ has an any second kind of imminent return, okay, because of 2 Thessalonians 2 that we've read. The day of the Lord will not come until the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, is revealed, and there will be many will be led astray by powerful faults, signs, and wonders, and then Jesus will be revealed in the heavens. He will kill the man of lawlessness with the breath of his mouth and bring him to nothing by the appearance of his coming, and then we will celebrate Christ's return. So if 2 Thessalonians 2 is referring to Christ's one final return, which I think it is, then Christ's return cannot happen, according to God's own word, until the great apostasy and the Antichrist show up, or the man of lawlessness shows up, and, and they do their thing. Now, those things happen. So if that's correct, I do think, could the Antichrist and the apostasy start happening this month? Yes. Could it not happen for another 4,000 years? Yes. We don't know. But once those events start unraveling, within any generation and within any short period of time, those events could transpire very quickly, and Christ could return. But people would say, well, then what about the text about Christ coming like a thief? It sounds like you've got this little, things have got to happen before the thief comes. That doesn't seem to fit with the text of Scripture. Well, my, my response to that is, see if this makes sense. Okay, 22 of the 27 New Testament books are not written by John the Apostle. He wrote the five that come at the end of the first century, so hang with me. 22 of the New Testament, I am convinced that the other 22 New Testament books, every book not written by John, was written before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 yes, AD. I agree. That's a little controversial, but I believe that. I'm a cons no. conservative in no, this way I, in every sense. So uh, I believe all, all the other 22 books are written before the fall of Jerusalem. Most of the eminency texts are there, like the, 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 the judge is standing at the door, the return of Christ is near, behold, I am coming quickly. Many of those texts are written before 70 AD. Now listen, before 70 AD, everyone believed Jesus could not come back yet because Jesus' return would not happen until after the fall of Jerusalem. So when a lot of the texts are written like James saying the, the judge is standing at the door, that cannot mean in any second return of Christ. James was written in the 40s AD. Christ could not return until at least after 70 because Jerusalem had not fallen, right? You see what I'm saying? So until Jerusalem would have fallen in the first century, Christ could not have come back because Jesus clearly says he's coming after the fall of Jerusalem. Do you see? So even the eminency texts were not in any second eminency. They were actually at least decades away from when Christ even theoretically could have come back. Does that make sense? That's, that's a little bit tricky. Let me give another argument. We're told at the end of John's gospel, remember this? Peter is walking with Jesus on the shore, resurrected Jesus, and Jesus says, Peter, the day is coming when people will dress you and they will take you where you do not want to go. And Jesus told Peter by which death he would glorify God. Peter was executed almost certainly upside down on a cross 
in the 60s, mid to late 60s, right around the time the apostle Paul died. Now listen, could Jesus come back before Peter was martyred? No, because Jesus said Peter would be martyred. And if Jesus came back before Peter was martyred, Peter wouldn't be martyred, right? So most of the New Testament books were written before Peter was killed. You're like, even first and second Peter? Yeah, even those. <laughs> so when, when the, like second Peter three talks about Christ's return, those things, if you knew what Jesus said about Peter, you would have known it was not in any second return. Peter would have to be martyred first. That hadn't happened yet. And the Jerusalem would have to fall first. That hadn't happened yet. So I don't think the imminency texts are in any second return. I think they're saying within any generation, Jesus could return, which I think is absolutely true. But I don't believe in the, any second return. I believe that the apostasy and the man of lawlessness have to happen first. Now, could we be wrong about who that is or when that's happening? Perhaps, maybe the Antichrist is doing something right now and we don't know about it and Christ comes back to kill him. That could happen too. Okay, so again, I'm more than happy to admit that on my way in the air to meet the Lord Jesus. Thoughts on this? Well said. Papa? I'm, I, I can't add anything. <laughs> um, uh, there was a, uh, you're right about it. Even in the Olivet Discourse, you can go back, I still contend, you go back to the Olivet Discourse, particularly Matthew or Luke. Mark's good too. Uh, Thanks, they, Papa. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, <laughs> thank you Mark. Um, there was the, there there was an expectation. You know, I mean, I'm I'm looking at First Corinthians uh, uh, 16. Uh, Paul says, "Our Lord come, Maranatha." I mean, there was this expectation. Paul mm -hmm. taught of the of the imminent return. I mean, the the early church thought Jesus was coming back a lot sooner than what than two thousand years. So there was this expectation. Now, I'm not notwithstanding the destruction of the temple and that kind. Right. That was the end of the age. That was the end of the Jewish age, mm -hmm. actually, uh, with the destruction of the temple. And then, uh, so no, I, I I I agree with you wholeheartedly. For the sake of time, we're gonna we're gonna wrap up here. I'm about to pray for us. Let me read a Doug Moo quote from from this uh, from this from his chapter in this book on the rapture. Doug Moo says this is important. Nowhere does Paul seek to comfort Christians by promising them exemption from tribulation in this world. Nowhere does Paul seek to comfort Christians by promising them exemption from tribulation. Instead, he says, what? Those who endure will also reign. Uh, if we have suffered with him, we will also be glorified with him in Romans 8. So uh, we, we should trust God in the midst of the difficulties of life. Uh, Greg, would you, why don't you pray for us, Greg, and we'll yeah. wrap it up. Father, we thank you, Lord, for yet another opportunity to gather as a church um, and consider these issues in light of what your word says. And God, I pray that we would always, Lord, be submitted to the text, uh, Lord, be willing to evaluate uh, ourselves and what we believe in light of the text of Scripture. God, we're thankful for such a profound unity, Lord, in the gospel and who Christ is and who you are and how we're saved. And Lord, on that basis, we can wrestle with these other issues together. Uh, Lord, side by side as brothers and sisters. Um, and Lord, I pray that all of us, we would grow in our grasp of your word and how it fits together uh, and what it's teaching um, on not just on end time stuff, but on any number of issues, Lord, that uh, flow out of uh, the gospel. Uh, so Lord, help us as a church to always stay rooted uh, in Christ and in the gospel as our source of life and unity together. Uh, and Lord, uh, also to... Uh, spur one another on, not just to, to love and good deeds to the world, but Lord, love and good deeds in terms of wrestling with your word and, and wrestling to understand what it's saying. And Lord, may we sharpen one another and only help one another uh, better uh, and more closely walk with you because we know your word better. And so God, we just commit ourselves afresh to you in this. 
Um, and Lord, help us to have, Lord, the true expectation of, of Christ coming back. Lord, that is our blessed hope. It is what we long for uh, more than anything so that we can see our Savior face to face. Lord, may that be the deepest longing of our heart more than anything else. And uh, Lord, help us to uh, always be ready. Lord, even while we, we know there are certain things that must take place first, Lord, they could happen in our lifetime. We don't know. But Lord, uh, may we always be on alert and always uh, ready to share the hope that's within us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the next two Sundays, uh, we will not have Sunday school. So we'll start back, Lord willing, the first Sunday of the new year. So I think it's January 2nd, three weeks from today. So hopefully I will see you guys then. And we'll be talking about... The millennium. Yes. How about that? Another non-controversial topic. So. <laughs> we plan to finish Grudem in the early part of the year and then start Daniel sometime yeah. After as that. soon as we can. Yeah. Thank you.